recently I watched an excellent documentary about the rescue of 13 young boys that were trapped in an underground cave in Thailand. Now this, uh, this was a group of 13 soccer players who um, had gone into the cave, and this cave was about two miles long underground, under this mountain range. And they had walked all the way in, over a mile and a half under the ground. And the caves were still open because it was June, but unfortunately the weather shifted abruptly and the, the summer monsoons came. And they came in a torrent. They came in, in, in an absolute, because there was no place for the water to go in that rocky mountain range. And so the rains came and and that underground cave filled up, and these 13 boys were trapped underwater. And in fact, for eight days, Navy SEALs tried to swim against the torrent and the mud in these tight crevices of this cave to get to these boys to find some way out. Navy SEALs could not do it. So they called in some cave divers. And it's an amazing story of a 15-day effort to save these boys. And by God's grace, they were all saved by these cave divers. But what is so sad to me is that, yes, the boys were rescued from the physical flood, a physical torrent. But what was going to happen to these boys in Thailand had they died in that cave? What is going to happen to those boys even now? I think they're probably in their early 20s, maybe a little younger. What is going to happen if those men die in their old age, locked in the tenets of Buddhism? In their worldview, Jesus is an enlightened teacher, but he's not God, and there's a reinventation of life, a reincarnation, time and time again, so that they might continue to pursue the goal in life, nirvana, the elimination of desires to escape all suffering. Yes, that temporary rescue of that, of that monsoon, that torrent, it's an amazing story. You should watch it. But what about the monsoon, the torrent of the wrath of God to come? Is Buddhism going to rescue them from the waters of God's judgment? Is Hinduism going to get people home to heaven? Is Islam with uh, trusting in Allah and doing good works, believing that Jesus has not raised from the dead, is that the foundation for salvation? What about Mormonism where there's no eternal life without Mormon membership, and Jesus is created as the spirit child by the Father and Mother in heaven. What about Jehovah's Witnesses where Jesus is not God? What about Christian science and Scientology and Wicca and New Age? And think about all those things, and then come to this sermon by Jesus that we're going to turn to in Luke chapter 6 and recognize that he's talking to one religion, Judaism. He's talking to the best of the best. He's talking to the Pharisees. Was keeping the law going to keep away the waters of God's judgment even in Judaism? Okay, well, let's not talk about Judaism. Let's get to Christianity. What about Christianity then? A follower of Christ. The Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, the Lutheran Church, the Anglican Church, the Presbyterian Church, the Methodist Church, the Anabaptist Church, the Congregational Church, the Baptist Church the Adventist Church, the Pentecostal Church, the Church of Christ, what is going to get us home? What's the truth? What is the foundation upon which, we, upon which we must build our lives so that we are safe from the waters of God's judgment? What is that foundation? I'm telling you, that is the most important question you can ask in this life. And the answer to that question is the most important answer you'll ever receive 
in this life. Now, I wanted you to take your bulletins out and look at the handout that you have in your bulletins. Maybe share it with each other. We're talking about Christianity now. Let's even talk, let's talk about Christianity. Look under the sermon title. There are three equations that you see there in front of you on that bulletin. Take a look at those three equations. Just do it for 10 seconds. Just enjoy it. Me not talking. Enjoy it. Look at those equations. Question I have for you. Which equation is the truth? Which equation is the gospel? Which equation do you want to build your whole life and hope upon? Faith, your faith, plus a life of obedience that in the end will lead to God saving you? Or how about the second one? Faith in Jesus and he, get, and he saves you? Or the third one? Faith in Jesus and then he saves you, plus produces obedience. Which one's going to get you home? Which one is a firm foundation? Which is the truth? And don't answer quickly. But let me tell you something. We're not talking about Buddhism and Hinduism here. We're making distinctions, not even in Judaism. Jesus is coming in this sermon in Luke chapter 6, and he is talking to disciples to followers of Jesus Christ, those who are following him. And he's making an important distinction. There's only one of those equations that's correct. There's a narrow way that leads to life. And that is the whole point of this sermon that we've been digging into in Luke chapter 6. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, page 1027, if you have a Bible in, in the pew back. We're getting to the very end of Jesus' first sermon that is recorded with the manuscript of his sermon in the book of Luke. In Luke chapter 6, I want you to find verse 46 because we are now at the very end of his sermon. The sermon that is all about discerning about true versus false discipleship. We come to the end of this sermon and Jesus like, Every good sermon is calling for a response from us. He's calling us to a response. Jesus was the preacher par excellence, and he's calling us to answer probably the most important question when you're distinguishing discipleship. Would be Christianity in all of the world, and this is it. Find it in Luke chapter 6, verse 46. So the text says... Here's Jesus' call. He's, he's expecting an answer from all of us. Here it is. Here it is. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? That's the question he wants us to respond to in his first sermon with a recorded manuscript in the book of Luke. He's not speaking to Hindus. He's not speaking to Buddhists. He's speaking to those who claim to be followers, to disciples of Jesus Christ. The sermon in verse 20 says, he turned his gaze towards his disciples and he began to say, those who are listening to him, those who are following him, and he's making a distinction. A large crowd hanging on every word. Why are you calling me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Lord, Lord is not sir, sir. I refuse that interpretation. This has full messianic implication. This even has... The, the feel of Yahweh behind it, the authority of God himself in Jesus Christ. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Well, all of those implications, that that's who I am, the Lord of your life, the Lord of the universe, and do not do what I say. 
So Jesus is bringing this sermon to a conclusion. He's helping us to discern discipleship. He wants us to know who is the blessed man, who is the cursed man, what does it look like, how do you discern discipleship? And here we go, what a conclusion of probably the most important sermon ever preached in the history of the world. And what decision will you make? How will you answer that question? Follow along as I read the conclusion of Jesus' sermon in Luke chapter 6. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and is not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation, and the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. You cannot call Jesus Lord and then refuse to do what he says. I mean, you can do that, but you will end up under the waters of the torrents of God's judgment. So Jesus closes his sermon with two possible ways to build a house. Two possible ways to build a house. And building a house... Building a house is a picture of discipleship. It's a picture of either true discipleship or false discipleship. It's one or the other. There are two ways to build a house. First in this passage, one can build a house, number one, with a foundation. Number one, you can build a house with a foundation. Verse 47, everyone who comes to me and here's my words, and acts on them, I will show you what he is like. Stop there, and he goes into the picture. Every would-be of disciple of Jesus Christ. Look, look, if you are a disciple of Christ, then you have come to him, right? The text says that. He's fine with that. Amen, you've come to Jesus. You've come to Jesus. Oh, you like to listen to him. You like to follow him. You like to hear his words. Great. If you come to him, the text says, and you're listening to him and you hear him, but the problem is you stop there. If you don't, if you don't act on them, then we don't have this foundation that will stand. The third component that is the difference. It's not just the coming. It's not just the hearing of the words of Christ. The third component is you come, you listen, and you act on the words of Christ. You obey the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, coming, listening, and obeying. Let's find out if that's a good foundation because that's one of the ways to build. You can build a house with a foundation. Look at it. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. Now, let me just be clear here. Everyone in this room is a builder in this sermon. You're here because you are a follower of Christ. Are you genuine or are you a false follower of Christ? That's the question, and he's helping us here. But understand, if you have some sort of an understanding of the gospel, you're a builder. 
If you're in the room hearing this sermon, you're a builder. If you profess to know Jesus Christ, you're a builder. If you say you're a Christian, you're a builder. If you say you're a disciple, a disciple, a follower of Jesus, you are a builder. And this passage is for all of us. This passage is for all of us to look at here this morning. Now, the first builder builds a house in this parable with a foundation. So he doesn't just get the wood and all of the the straw and build this house up on the topsoil. What what this builder does is he takes a shovel, hopefully with some help, and he digs down deep through the topsoil. And he goes way down. The passage says in the Greek, he and this is super emphatic, he dug into the ground and went deep down and laid a foundation. It's as if he digs and digs down and he finds this bedrock and then he builds the house upon that. He fastens it to the bedrock and he builds and constructs his house. So, hear the Sermon of Christ. Everyone's building a house who names the name of Christ. Build, build, build. Coming to Jesus, podcasting, sermons, the whole works. Journaling, the whole works. But genuine disciples, Discipleship, the kind of foundation that lasts, is not superficial Christianity. This is all about going deep. This is about you, and it's, and it's, and it's opposed to some superficial head knowledge of Jesus that does not go deep down and start and is rooted in the heart of mankind. It alludes back to the very beginning of the sermon. The blessed man, the blessed man is the one who his heart has been softened and he's poor, he's poor in spirit, he's been humbled, he's been broken before God, he realizes and feels his sin, he's convinced of his sin, he's broken before God. He weeps over his sin, he hungers for righteousness. Lord, I don't have this righteousness. Give me this righteousness. I need your righteousness. I'm hopeless and helpless. There's been a real hard work. Eyes have been opened to see things about who he is and who Christ is. Verse 45 of this very sermon says, The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. So he has this heart. He's been been brought into relationship with God. God is merciful. God is kind. He's been given this heart. He's in relationship with his Father. He's the Son of the Most High, the text says. He's been given this new heart with new disposition that forgives, that gives, that doesn't judge, that doesn't condemn, and even sprouts forth with this fruit, this fruit that would even love enemies. There's an integrity here who he is on the inside. He is on the outside. Jesus is saying this is genuine discipleship. This is the foundation that will last, he's saying. This is the first house that is built. Will it last? Well, let's keep reading and see if it lasts. And when the flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. Now, in, in Jesus' day in the land of Israel, uh, like in the, the, the caves at Thailand on, on the rock, there wasn't a lot of good soil where the water could just soak in. So when the, when the, tor- when the, when the rains came, and with the, with the t- topography and the valleys and the mountains, the rains came, they didn't sink down, and they gathered quickly into wadis and into streams and into actually rivers and torrents that when the rains came in force in that day, they would pour through even the villages. And so think of a flash flood and your house there with the water 15 feet, 10 feet high just rushing in 
through a flood. This is the picture of the words that Jesus is using. This is a river that crashes, literally, against the home. This is the picture. A flood or high water coming against the house. And what you're to picture was when that raging water bashes against that house, the torrents, the furious torrents that dashes and assaults and crashes against the house. This isn't having a toilet leak and having some roof damage. This is a flood coming against the house. It's an enormous force. But the text says that even these onrushing, swirling rivers of water are not even able to shake the house. Not even able to shake the house. And when the storm is over, the sun peeks through the crowds and the water quickly dissipates in that land. And there stands the house. Why? Because it's been well built upon the rock. Remember the parable of the sower that we read in Luke chapter 8. You've got the preaching of the Word of God. You've got the seed of the Word of God. We're preaching and preaching, and it falls on hearts. The Word of God falls on different hearts. Sometimes it falls on hard hearts, and you don't understand it, and the evil one snatches away the beginnings. Or sometimes you hear the word and you receive the word with joy, but there's no firm root, remember, and it doesn't go deep. It doesn't go deep. And it's only temporary. And when an affliction comes, the waters of affliction, the waters of persecution arise because of the word, and immediately he falls away. And then there's the seed that's sown in the heart. The heart. The seed's always interacting with the heart. The seed is sown in the heart of thorns. And so when you hear the word and it begins to, to blossom in your heart, but the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. But there's another possibility. Flip over to Luke 18 and verse 15 and we'll see what it is. Luke 8 Verse 15, but the seed in the good soil, that's the heart. These are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Or as Matthew says in his version of the parable of the sowers in Matthew chapter 13, verse 23, the one whom the seed was sown on the good soil. This is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, and some thirtyfold. And this fruit is obedience to the word of Christ. The heart is the wellspring of life. A true disciple has had a heart transplant. Christianity is inside out, Jesus is saying. And if you have had a heart that has been softened to receive the word of God, it will bloom and it will produce the fruit of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ because we're digging down, because Jesus is digging down. He's not just chipping away. He's digging down to our hearts. He wants our hearts. He wants our heads. He wants our hands. He wants all of us. And that is the foundation that will last, not only against the torrents of the trials and temptations of this life, but more fundamentally in this passage, I believe, that is the one that will last in the day when Christ comes back in the day of final judgment. This is so encouraging. Believer, true Christian, you will not be shaken. Watch this. 
he will not even be shaken by the wrath of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are safely hidden in Christ Jesus. We're built upon the rock of our Lord Jesus Christ. How glorious is this that when the waters of God's judgment are unleashed and pound against the professors, those who profess Christ in this world, the true disciples won't even be shaken. Turning your Bibles just quickly to a cross-reference here to 2 Thessalonians 1 and find verse 3. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 3, page 1,184, if you have a Bible that you see in the pew back in front of you, 1,184, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, find verse 3. Christ is going to come. There's the waters of God's judgment. He comes. On a white horse, the robe dipped in blood, the sword of his almighty power. He's coming. Verse 3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows. It grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Verse 5, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction, those who afflict you, watch this, verse 7, and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire. And what will he do when he comes upon this world? Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not what? Who do not what? Obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of temporal destruction, of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord, away from the glory of his power. Stop there. But not us, not those who have built the foundation upon Jesus Christ, not true disciples. Did you notice the word that it describes of us? Verse 7, did you miss it? When Jesus comes and he's dealing out retribution, we're not going to be feeling retribution. We're going to be feeling relief. Relief. You know what that word means? Relief. And rest, it means. It means actually relaxation. Does that sound funny? Can you, how could you possibly relax at the mighty fury of the wrath of the waters of God? Oh, you're built upon the rock of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when he is revealed... Rest, relief, resting in him. What, in verse 10 explains that. When he comes, he comes to be what? Glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at, not, not in cringing fear, but in marveling at Christ and glorified together in Christ on that day with all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed and then he says, I'm praying for that, to this end. Verse 11, to this end, we also pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire. Is desire a heart word or a head word? That he would fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified superficially, no, in you, and you in him according to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a description of the house that will stand when the waters of the wrath of God come at the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you can build a house first. Coming to Jesus, good, that's faith. Coming to Jesus, 
hearing his words and obeying him, submitting to his will, because he is not only Savior, but he is Many will not build homes this way in professing Christianity. Am I right? They will not count the cost. They want to build up a quick shack. Just throw it up so I have more money for me and time for me. That leads us then to the second way of building, building with no foundation. There's a second way to build, and that is building a house with no foundation. Now, I want you to notice carefully the difference. I hope you're in Luke 6. Notice the difference between the two ways of building. Verse 49, but, by way of contrast, but the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly, and then he explains it. Now, let's go back. Look at verse 47. I want you to see this. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them That's a good foundation. But the one who has come is implied. The one who has come, who has heard, and has not acted is like this. What is the difference? Whether you act upon the words of Christ or don't act upon the words of Christ. That's how Jesus ends his sermon. Don't make this hard. Whether or not they obey the words of Jesus... That is the difference here between true discipleship and false discipleship. What is this one like that comes and listens but does not act? Well, he's like a man who built a house on the ground with any foundation. So here's a man. He likes shortcuts. He wants to save time. He wants to save energy in his building project. He wants to save money. So this builder cuts corners. He doesn't want to dig deep. He wants to keep his house real superficial-like. Looks real good when it pops above the ground. Oh, that's a nice house you got there. Likes it. Likes to be seen. Likes to look like a nice house. But he builds on the topsoil, the text says, or the loose gravel. And so this, this person is very short-sighted. He's living for right now. He forgets the past. He forgot four years ago when the monsoons came and wiped out his town when the floods came into that town in his land. And he certainly doesn't think about the future. He's thinking of right now, my money, my fame, my this, my food. He's the woeful man in Jesus' sermon. He's short-sighted. But he's happy to be labeled a disciple. He he has interest in Jesus. He's someone who is following. He's interested in coming to Jesus, following him, hearing his words. He picks and chooses which words he decides to define, to put into practice. He isn't really concerned about digging deep within his heart and seeing his sin and this whole longing for righteousness stuff. This whole, don't give me this love for Jesus language. Don't tell me that I need to make it my ambition to be pleasing to him. No, he's interested in having enough time and a little money left over to be comfortable now, to be well now, to laugh now, for people to say that that's a pretty nice thing you got going. You're a pretty good builder. It's a nice house. In short, this is someone who has said, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I read my Bible. I go to church. But... It's all superficial. It's never gone from here to here. They don't. Yes, they hate when they get caught with their sin. Who doesn't? The police officer. Who doesn't? When mommy and dad find out about your sin and it costs you something. We all hate that. But this one's different. There's been a heart that's been softened to see sin. And they actually begin to hate their sin and don't want it anymore. And they've seen Jesus and his beauty and his glory. And they're imperfect, but they want to go after him. But not these people. They're just a little bit of Christianity. They're fine building a house. They're not stupid. They're not. They want salvation too. They want to go to heaven, but they're not willing to deny themselves, 
to take up their cross and to follow Jesus. They want him to be Savior, but they're not willing to make him Lord of their lives. They're not willing to submit to the words of Christ, even when it's difficult. They want to put a good show on in front of others. They're fine jumping through some hoops. They want their fire insurance, but they also want their sin as well. They're very orthodox in what they believe very often, but there's nothing supernatural. In short, this type of builder has a form of Christianity, but deny its transforming power. There's no spirit working in the heart of that man. This is someone with no real saving faith in Jesus Christ, and this is building with no foundation. And what will happen The torrents burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. What a graph. The Greek is so graphic here. Okay, let me just try to help you. Okay, Okay, I don't know if you have ever seen a flood in a little house and a flood rushing down and just doing that to a house where it's gone in less than a half a second. That's the picture of this word. It's pulverized. It just blows up. It's gone. It's gone in an instant. The house is destroyed. The very last word of of Christ's sermon here recorded by Luke is the word mega in the Greek. It's a very mega destruction. An emphatic ending, as one scholar has said, quotes, the verse ends with the tragic sound of a huge thud as the house falls in a great heap. Listen to me. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, if you call me Lord, Lord, very emotionally, very emphatically, Lord, Lord, it's a cry, Lord. And you even go to worship night, raise your hands up. You understand good orthodoxy. You go to church your whole life. You journal, you do your devotions, all of that. But if you're not interested in obeying the words of Christ, you're building on the wrong foundation. You are a professing Christian, a professing disciple of Christ, but you do not possess possess Jesus Christ. Listen to me. Listen to me. You don't possess the life of Christ, the spirit of Christ in your soul. There's no power Jesus is not trying to be mean to us. He's not trying to be mean to me and to you. He's helping us. He's helping us discern what discipleship really is. He wants to help us. He wants us to be saved, but he must tell us. This is how he starts his ministry, the first printed sermon. He doesn't want us to be ruined. And I'm telling you, if you build upon this house, we've seen it. Moms and dads have seen it as teenagers and and college, people go away to college. And the trials and temptations of this life in a mini flood, a mini flood, rush against their house. And even that is enough to wipe clean their profession of faith. Is it not? To wipe it clean. But even if you, listen to me, even if you can fake it till you die, God will not be mocked. There's a bigger flood coming, the flood of the judgment of God. And in a parallel passage in Matthew's gospel, at the end of Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will say to those professors, depart from me. Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and didn't do that in your name? Depart from me. I never knew you. Knew intimacy, heart, relationship with God. I never had a personal relationship with you. It was all externalism. And I'm telling you, your ruin will be great. It will be immediate. It will not be debatable. There will not be time for repentance, nor time for discussion, nor time for reevaluation. 
it will be flattened on the day of God's judgment. J.C. Ryle, who preached on this not, not fun passage many years ago, said this, quotes, now listen, an old and common sin is profession without practice. He goes on to say that it is a disease which has never ceased to prevail over all Christendom. It is a soul-ruining plague which is continually sweeping away crowds of gospel hearers down the broad way of destruction. Open sin and avowed unbelief no doubt slay their thousands, but profession without practice slays its tens of thousands, end quotes. There are two ways to build in this passage. Everyone, everyone listen. There are two ways to build in this passage. You can build with the, with the foundation or you can build your house with no foundation. Building with a foundation is coming to Jesus, hearing Jesus, and obeying Jesus. And building without a foundation is coming to Jesus, hearing Jesus, but not obeying Jesus. As we close and apply this, listen. Go to the application or implication part of your notes. What is the difference between disciples? What is the difference between the disciples? The difference is doing what Jesus says. And you say, now let me get real here. You say, I struggle in doing what Jesus says. I struggle as well. I don't do what Jesus says perfectly. Join the crowd. But are you bearing the good fruit of obedience in your life? Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. What does it look like then if you're a genuine disciple? Well, it means you've come to Jesus You've heard his words, and those words, the seed from the sowing of the word of God, those words fell on a heart that God in the day of his power has made soft, and he's given you a new heart, new eyes, and he's opened your eyes up to see it. And those, the word of God actually goes into your heart, and it takes root into a heart that God has made good. And so you begin to see your own sin and recognize that you've fallen short of the glory of God, that you really can't work your way out of this mess. You can't. And you need Jesus, and you need his perfections, you need his grace. And you come to him, and you believe in him, and you find rest in him. And you begin to hate sin, and you begin to love Jesus and love his people. And we saw in this sermon that you love your enemies. You're a blessed man. You've been, you've been shown. Now, I'm summarizing the sermon. Watch this. You're a blessed man. You're poor in spirit. You long for the righteousness of God. And, and, and you've been changed from the inside out to believe and to trust in Jesus. And it manifests itself as love for enemies. And it manifests itself, not as superficial stuff, but as integrity, where you have an inner man that matches your outer man. And it manifests itself not with just love and integrity, but it manifests itself in obedience to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is helping us. That's how we discern discipleship. And you say, I'm really struggling. I want to act it out, but I can't. I'm struggling with it. If you're really struggling with it, if there's a desire from your heart to change, then that's, that's a sign of life. A struggle is a sign of life. You say, how do I act out the words of Christ? You know what? You might need to talk to one of your pastors. You might need to ask someone to forgive you. You might need 
to stop taking staples at work. You might need to write a little post-it note of apology. You may need to decide to open up your mouth and witness to your mother. You may, you may need to forgive that person. It's not the perfection of how we act upon these things. It is the direction of our lives that we desire and we're pressing forward to act upon these things. It is not the perfection. It is the, the direction and the affection. But let's make no mistake about it. There is a genuine discipleship here that Jesus is trying to press upon us. There's a difference here. Jesus says in John 14, verse 15, just listen, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Or in John 15, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Or in James chapter 1, verse 22, but prove yourself doers of the word and not merely hearers, which, which, delude themselves. It's all over the scriptures. Pastor John MacArthur is right, quotes, submission to Jesus as Lord is a non-negotiable element of true salvation. End quotes. Can you tell the difference between, number two, can you tell the difference between disciples? Let me just tell you. Listen. When you look at a couple of disciples standing in front of this house and that house, can you see below the ground? You cannot. This is the scariness of this passage. You cannot tell the difference with the first glance. You cannot. You cannot tell the difference. J.C. Ryle is right. Both may worship in the same church. Both may use the same ordinances. Both may profess the same faith. The outward appearance of the house built on the rock and the house without any solid foundation may be much the same, in quotes. What will reveal the difference? And here's what will reveal the difference. Time will reveal the difference. <laughs> when the testings of temptations and trials come, many will fall away. There will not be any true and deep repentance. There will not be any true obedience over time. But even if that house still stands and they fake it that long, like the weed and the tares, that'll all be sorted on the day of judgment. It'll be sorted and it'll be quick. And an overwhelming torrent of God's judgment will flatten that house in an instant. And there won't be any actions, discussions, or second chances. That house will fall and that forever. So that's the question. What's your answer to the question of Christ? He's calling for a response this morning. Why? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? When I was 21 years old, I married my wife. I said all the right things. I jumped through all the right hoops. I even faked out Pastor Don in my interview to, get, to gain approval to marry. I was no Christian. In fact, I was into school, and I stayed home after I got married. My wife was probably had big eyes. I said, I'm staying home. I'm not going. I'm studying. But God was working in my heart over time. And finally, I had a baby. I was 27 years old. I had Abby, and I finally had an excuse to take Abby and to go to Twin Cities Bible Church, which my friend Chris was inviting me to hear the word. Finally, I went because I had something to show off, but I was too proud to go without an alibi. And so I went, and the Spirit of God came, and Lloyd was preaching in Galatians about all of this faith and work stuff, and I just got convicted, and my friend Chris gave me this book by Arthur Pink called Practical Christianity. And the first chapter was called Saving Faith. And the first paragraph of the first chapter, as I'm reading that, was there is a faith in Christ which does not save. And I said, what? There's a head knowledge demon faith. And that chapter just unraveled me. And with tears streaming down my face, I cried out for salvation in my townhome that week. 
three weeks before my radiology board exam. I was supposed to be studying 24-7, but I couldn't get enough of the Word of God, and things changed. All of a sudden, I wanted to be at church. I couldn't, I, I thought I was in a cult or something. It was weird. God got a hold of my heart. And that's what Jesus does for us. May we build upon the rock of our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, the foundation you will build upon the rock is none other than Jesus Christ. Now listen to me. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus himself is our righteousness, that he has forgiven us all of our sins, that he's paid the penalty of our sins. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is not what Jesus does for us, but what Jesus does in us, that he gives us his spirit. And for everyone that, that whom he's justified, he will sanctify and he will transform you. The gospel is, the true foundation is that he saved you from the penalty of sin. He is saving you from the power of sin. And one day he will save you from the very presence of sin. That is the true gospel. It is Christ. And he does all of it for all those who've seen their sin and put their trust in Jesus Christ. So which equation is correct? Which is the firm foundation? Faith equals salvation or justification plus obedience. Stop playing games. Obey the very first command of Christ. Here it is. Repent and believe the gospel. Command number one. You're going to obey it? You can obey his words, repent and believe the gospel. And if you do, then you will be able to sing from your heart. Remember that song that we just sung by Edward Mote? He wrote it in 1834. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Father, there is a heaviness and a seriousness to the words of Christ. He meant to help us. He meant to explain to us what it really looked like to be a Christian and a disciple of Jesus. Father, I pray that there's been some clarity today that the faith that saves continues to produce the fruit of the Spirit of the living God, obedience to the Word of Christ. And Father, I pray if there is one here today or more that, like I was for 27 years, had some veneer, some external Christianity and thought that was my fire insurance and good enough, that they would recognize and 